In the season finale of The Bitey End of the Dog, I have the honor of chatting with none other than Mark Beckoff, a true pillar in the world of animal behavior. You're not going to want to miss this episode as we discuss everything from emotions in animals, sentience, aggression in ethology, and even the dreaded D word or dominance. Mark is a professor emeritus of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. He has published 31 books, or 41 depending on if you count the multi-volume encyclopedias, won many awards for his research on animal behavior, animal emotions, compassionate conservation, and animal protection. Mark has also worked closely with Jane Goodall and is a co-chair of the Ethics Committee of the Jane Goodall Institute, as well as a former Guggenheim Fellow. His latest books are The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age, co-authored with Jessica Pierce, Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do, and Unleashing Your Dog, a field guide to giving your canine companion the best life possible, also co-authored with Jessica Pierce. And he also publishes regularly for Psychology Today. Mark and Jessica's most recent book, A Dog's World, Imagining the Lives of Dogs in a World Without Humans, was published by Princeton University Press in October of 2021. Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine, will be published by New World Library in June 2023, which is actually probably out by now at the time of this recording. And the second edition of The Emotional Lives of Animals will be published in March of 2024. In 1986, Mark won the Master's Age Graded Tour de France. His homepage is Mark with a C, M A R C, Beckoff.com. And if you are enjoying The Buddy and the Dog, you can support the podcast by going to aggressivedog.com, where there's a variety of resources to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, including the upcoming Aggression and Dogs Conference happening from September 29th through October 1st, 2023, in Chicago, Illinois, with both in person and online options. You can also learn more about the Aggression and Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues. Hey everyone, welcome to the Bitey End of the Dog. I have a super special guest this week, Dr. Mark Beckoff, and I have been following his work for years. I think many of us in the dog training industry have, as well as beyond. I was talking to Kim Brophy yesterday. We were talking about you and we were kind of, I was picking her brain. I'm like, if you were to ask some questions to Mark, what would you ask? And, you know, Kim is an applied ethologist and she's definitely in the ethology field as well. So she's like, yeah, that's a good question. He's kind of one of the last true ethologists is what she called <laughs> you. So much respect to you, Mark. Um, and welcome to the Thank show. You. Oh, it's, it's great to be here. I'm thrilled. I like free-ranging discussions yes. about wonderful dogs. <laughs> I'm excited for this. So I'd first like to jump into your focuses on ethology and behavioral ecology or evolutionary biology, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, for dog trainers or people working with dogs, if you had a new trainer and you're like, all right, this is the sciences that are important to understanding behavior, what would they be for you? Oh, Wow. I mean, simply put, I would ask them to pay attention to the good science of, say, animal emotions and animal cognition, you know, focusing maybe on dogs, but but not really. I mean, dogs are mammals, and what we're learning about animals other than dogs is really applicable. And it sounds unscientific, but the other two things I would stress would be 
pay attention to common sense and mm-hmm. always treat your dog with the most respect you can. They're living sentient beings and they care about what happens to them, if you will. Yes. Um, but, yeah. you know, that would be it, just weaving in the latest science and common sense. And, and also, and I'm sure you and I will talk about it, something I'm really interested in because I'm a field biologist and oftentimes you can see similar studies on the same animals that produce very different results. Pay attention to the context of the studies because it's not that the science is bad, but different dogs are studied in different labs using different methods. Data are analyzed differently. So sometimes different labs disagree. Mm -hmm. It's not because one lab is doing better work than the other, although there are differences, to be honest, but it's more context. And I've written a lot about this in terms of when I've partaken in lab studies around the world, they're all good. But, you know, every now and again, somebody comes in and says, oh, my dog had a bad day. Should I partake in the experiment? And I always say no, but talk to the person doing the experiment. Or, you know, one woman came in to a place where they're using food as a reward and she was running late, so her dog had just eaten. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not saying that that's good or bad. It's more, it can influence the results. The other thing is pay attention to the fact that really 75% of the billion or so dogs on the planet are free-ranging or feral on their own. So a lot of the data that come from studies in labs come from homed dogs. Mm-hmm. And there are There's a lot of similarities, but sometimes people will say, well, dogs don't do this or can't do this. And and I've seen what they're talking about countless times, even at just free-ranging dog parks. So, I mean, just being careful about how we use the information. Yes. And I love that you mentioned, you know, the vast majority of dogs on the planet are not in a pet home, right? They're free-ranging or, Mm -hmm. you know, they're out on the street somewhere. And so... I talk about that a lot. I mean, there's so much we can learn about seeing those dogs in that environment, about what behavior to expect in dogs in most cases. And then we put them into home environments and just how much that environment can impact their behavior. So how much would you say we should separate that when we're looking at it? Or should we really be looking at much more of these, those free ranging feral or whatever category of dog you want to put them into? But how much should we be studying those Mm -hmm. dogs to apply to pet homes? Or should we, because there's such a significant environmental difference. And then we can get into the the rabbit hole of certain breeds that we're selecting behaviors for that are more likely to be in a home environment. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the other big message, of course, is that there's individual differences, even among dogs when they, you know, when their eyes open. I remember when I did my field work on coyotes, and I've also seen wild wolves when they come out of their den at three weeks of age, they're very, very different personalities. There's bold animals, there's shy individuals. There's some who are so obnoxious, you hope you never see them again. You wish them well. (laughs) But your question's a really good one. So I think what we really need to do is take into account the context in which the studies are done. Are they home dogs? Are they in labs? Are they at dog parks or free ranging? And pay careful attention to how data were collected. And this is not to be over-scientific. It's just more to say it's an evaluation of what the results mean. But I think the big question of who dogs are, you know, they all have the same common wolf ancestor. 
and what their behavioral potential is, their cognitive abilities, which simply means how they learn certain things and use that information to adapt to different situations, and also their emotions. But also, you know, people say, well, you know, male dogs aren't good fathers, but we don't know that really for captive animals because usually the male isn't around. Right. And there are field studies showing that there is paternal as well as what we call allopaternal behavior where there are helpers, you know, who help raise the children of the female who gave birth. That's what I find the most exciting. I mean, that question is the most exciting to me because it shows that there's no the dog, there's no universal dog. And when it comes down to training or teaching them or educating them what we want them to do, taking into account individual differences in personalities is really important. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So taking a step back and looking at all of that, that you're saying, you know, from an ethology lens, you know, I think sometimes we need to help pet owners or pet guardians understand, you know, the natural behavior of dogs. And then when we try to put that into the home environment or very restricted environment, how much that can impact things from an enrichment standpoint. Can you talk us through that a little bit and, and why it's important again to really, yes, it's important to look at the individual dog, but as well as all the factors that can influence behaviors from that ethology lens. Yeah, that's a great point. Because oftentimes the dogs don't have the opportunity to express their, if you will, behavioral potential. They're so accustomed to being what I call helicoptered. They're always told, no, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, so they get to the point where they don't even try. They may be bored. They may be just sort of what's going on in their mind could simply be, look, you know, I don't feel like partaking in this experiment. And I had some, a very well-known primatologist tell me some years ago that he thinks that when you're looking at great apes and monkeys in the lab, sometimes they just don't do something because they're bored or they just don't feel like doing it. It's not because they can't. And other field primatologists have seen these behavior patterns that you can't get these captive animals to do you know, in the field. So I think that that's really, really important. But it all comes back to knowing the dog as an individual knowing their personality, knowing what they've been exposed to, knowing what they like and don't like. So once again, I think the exciting thing for me in the future in dog research is paying attention to all those variables. And once again, I stress that the science that's done among captive animals, you know, sometimes people go into homes and watch the animals. Sometimes they're in labs. It's not bad science. It's just extremely limited science. And my own experience doing field work on coyotes and other animals is they too, when you watch them in captivity, they're interesting, but they're not often able to express their full behavioral repertoire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would love to kind of expand on that since the podcast is about aggression in dogs, mm -hmm. I'd love to pick your brain on, you know, because you have such broad experience seeing, you know, studying animals and their natural environments versus captivity. And then we see dogs in, in my experience, dogs that are, you know, not 
owned by somebody or not in the confined environment are less likely to display aggressive behaviors mm -hmm. than we're seeing in home environments, especially environments in which they're much more controlled and restricted. And sort of the nature of aggression cases, we're often asking for more management, more restriction to prevent the dog from biting anybody. So the dog's created more or less walks happen. So mm -hmm. can you mm -hmm. expand on that? Just sort of a broad overview, what your thoughts, I'd love to Go inside your well, brain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, across species, when animals, individuals feel trapped, which could be leashed, tethered, confined in a room, they get more assertive or more aggressive, sometimes fear-based. They're just afraid they can't get out of a situation. So I think those concerns are really true. And you know, you've probably heard as well as I have, although I can't find a single controlled study that, you know, leash dogs are more assertive or aggressive. And when they're off a leash, they're fine. I think part of it is that they feel free and they're happier. But I think part of it is they feel more in control of what they're able to do. You know, if another dog jumps on them and they're not sure whether the other dog's intentions are to play or to dominate them or to be assertive, when they're free to get away and not trapped, they don't have to respond to what would be the most adaptive response if they're tethered and trapped would be to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. And and you see this in wild animals. I've seen it in wild coyotes and wolves and foxes where when they're quote pinned against the wall, although there may not be a wall, but there's no way out they express themselves in different ways than when they can just feel free to leave. And oftentimes, just leaving a situation is really the remedy. Mm -hmm. The other animal goes, okay, you don't want to play? Okay, fine. You don't want to fight? Okay, fine. Okay, you don't want to do what I want to do? Fine. And they'll find someone, they'll find another dog in this case to do what they want to do with them. Yeah, the buzzword right now is agency or choice and control on the environment. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're speaking of, is being able to make choices in the environment? Absolutely. It comes down to what people call agency, freedom to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And then the other side is that you know your choice to do certain things will be honored. But if it's not honored, that's – and when I say that's okay, it's not okay. But if it's not honored and you're free to get away – then you don't have to worry about being, if you will, pinned against the wall and forced to do something that you might not want to do. I mean, wild animals really are very good at avoiding, if you will, inter-dog, inter-coyote fighting and, you know, actual physical contact. That's why all the displays have evolved. You know, as an ethologist, you know, you look at threat displays, you look at submission and appeasement behaviors because they don't want to fight. They do fight, but you could be the highest ranking wolf or coyote or fox in a group. And if you get injured fighting and you can't reproduce, then, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, you're genetically dead. So you kind of win the battle, but you lose the war in terms of passing your genes on. So I think I actually say this to people a lot at dog parks, just watch what these animals do. You know, another thing is humans interfere in what appears to be something that could be dangerous. And if you know dog, you're fluent in dog, you could be pretty efficient in knowing that something will or will not escalate into something that's dangerous. But, you know, it's like with kids, at some point, they need to learn to resolve their own social conflicts, if you will, or potential social conflicts. 
You mentioned a couple other words that are controversial sometimes in the dog training space, which are <laughs> assertive and dominance, which we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to later in the, on in the episode. We'll revisit those. I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit more too about when animals display a much higher level intensity of aggression. So they might do much, let's say use a dog that's much more likely to bite with much more damage. And mm-hmm. from an evolutionary standpoint, from survival standpoint, that's not very efficient from, I guess, an ethology lens, right? Or not desirable because you're risking injury to yourself and you know your fitness. So why do you think that occurs with some of the pet dog cases where we see significant levels of aggression, you know, damaging death to another animal or even people, and maybe less so in nature? Is that a correct mm-hmm. statement or what are your thoughts there? Well, yeah. I mean, out in nature, if you will, you know, wolves will kill other wolves. They'll kill intruders and they can, and coyotes too, though, and they can have really high intensity and violent fights mm-hmm. within their group. But they also have the opportunity to get away, you know, mm-hmm. the individuals who are being attacked. I mean, my take on not only home dogs, but even home dogs who go free ranging, running around. Cause you know, I live in Boulder and there's lots of places where they can be free. Or we have great dog parks here is a lot of them just are chronically stressed. They're chronically anxious. They're chronically living in fear, if you will, not necessarily because of what their humans do, but just their daily routine. They try to do something and they're told no. They don't have any idea of what is permissible, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one thing. Um, how they're reared, you know, for rescue dogs, and I know a lot of rescue dogs, I've had some rescue dogs, you just don't know anything about how they were reared, their early periods of socialization, often none. So I've seen dogs at dog parks who came from the same litter from a box on the roadside in New Mexico or Arizona or Texas, where a lot of dogs come from in Colorado. And even when they're three, four, five weeks of age, there are very large differences in their personalities. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they were all treated alike. So it shows that there's a lot of innate, inborn, inherent differences. But I do think that a lot of dogs have bad dog days, not intentionally, and you wouldn't even know it. You know what I mean? Because it comes from people not understanding that these are fully sentient mammals, like we are fully, or most of us at least are fully sentient Mm -hmm. mammals, and their needs aren't met. Yeah, I mean, they're on edge. I, I really feel that way. And the dogs who I know, I wouldn't say I know the best because I live in Boulder now, which of course is in a big city, but the dogs down here, they can't run free. There's cars. You know, some dogs are trained well. But when I lived in the mountains for years on end, the dogs on my road and the dogs who came down to say hello to them, they were almost never collared and rarely leashed. And, you know, they'd have their spats. But generally, I just never saw what I would see on an average day at a dog park or a you know, hiking trail where they looked around and, and looked to be always vigilant, always wondering gosh, am I doing something wrong? Or, uh uh-oh, you know, I really don't want to get in this particular dog's space. So I don't know of any studies, although I think that some of the studies that I know of free-ranging and feral dogs, 
show that these dogs, yeah, they have their spats and yeah, they'll fight and yeah, they'll form dominance relationships or social relationships within their group. But there's just not as much of the snapping mm-hmm. and the nervousness, if you will. Yeah. 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 I yeah. think you bring up an important point too. It's something I, I implore a lot of my students to do is to observe dogs in different environments, their social interactions. So, mm-hmm. because sometimes it's colored by our own, you know, our lenses are looking at dogs maybe just in our home or in a dog daycare or in a dog group class or so observing dogs in dog parks and feral dogs, you know, running around on the street somewhere and all, because there's the differences sometimes are profound in their communication skills. Yeah. And it's just fascinating to watch that. Right. And it's a myth that these free-ranging dogs don't form close relationships with people. I mean, there's been studies in Bali and other places, and I've seen this in person in East Africa, China, and India, where these dogs like people. It's not like they're unsocialized, but their interactions are just very different because, once again, they've got the freedom to come and go. When I was in Southern India, I walked through the streets of the city from my hotel. And sometimes I'd have dogs following me. Sometimes I wouldn't. I'd always have treats. I'd always give them food because they need the food. Some of them don't have regular meal times. I just never felt concerned. I really felt like if a dog was trying to get in my face and I would just, you know, say something quietly like, you know, leave me alone. No, you know, or go find another dog, whatever, you know, even if they didn't understand the English, I wasn't yelling at them. And maybe they can sense that, you know, they could sniff some of my fear, but they had the freedom to go somewhere else. That's excluding the cases where you've got dogs who have psychopathologies just like humans and will attack you because that's just the way they've learned to adapt. Yes, yes. And I have this dream someday, Mark, of doing like a world tour with a bunch of people like ethologists and trainers, just observing dogs in different places. That's one of my favorite Mm. things to do. When I travel, I go and I'm like, don't show me this tourist sites. Take me to where the dogs are because that's what I want to see. I want to just watch the dogs because it's just so fascinating to me, you know? Well, I mean, another experience I had, and and I was looking up the name just now and I can't find it and I think it still exists, but outside of Barcelona, there's a dog rescue center, and I'll try to find some more information. Mm -hmm. But when I went there, there were about 200 dogs, and there were separate, there were 100 dogs in each enclosure. They were large, but running free. (laughs) (laughs) And when we pulled up there with my friend, we got out of the car, and this mass of dogs (laughs) ran over to me. And my friend who was hosting me said, you'll be okay, and they're okay. It just turned out that, yeah, when they first met one another, they would sniff. Sometimes they'd growl, Mm -hmm. you know, an occasional fight. But it was incredible to me to see this group of one was 100 dogs who just got along. Yeah, they snapped. Yeah, they peed here and there. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. one had a bad day. But once again, you know, I think it's because they felt the freedom. Two things, the freedom to get away from something that could be really antagonistic and the freedom to find Mm -hmm. dogs who wanted to sniff and play. Yeah, yeah. So all those, I can envision all those dogs running up to you and it's like, could be a nightmare for some, but a delightful dream for others, right? To experience that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I was prepared for it. And likewise, I've seen these big groups of dogs in India and outside of Nairobi in Kenya. And, you know, some of them are in bad health. The people don't have vet 
they either don't get much care or the people can't afford it. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of like, oh, who's this? Although they're not using English or Swahili, it's like, who's this two-legged mammal who's walking in <laughs> on me? You know, you get the feeling when I was out in the field for years on end with coyotes and sometimes with wolves, they're just looking and it's like, who's this two-legged thing walking over to us? <laughs> but yeah, I think what you're suggesting is really cool. I, I I just really enjoyed being in these different places and having people say, well, there's this group and, you know, there's this reddish dog and he will run up to you really fast and stop and put his paw up, you know, so mm-hmm. he's, the people would literally say he's not going to attack you. And of course, the first time they run up and they sit and they're like a low growl or snarl, you're going, well, I'm not sure about this, <laughs> yeah. but, but they were right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 It's so much fun to do that. I just love it. I, I would love to segue now to emotions in animals, you know, because I know you've talked a lot mm-hmm. about that today. You've written about it on Psychology Today, which I love, by the way. And anybody who hasn't seen Mark's articles there, Mark writes about everything from uh, sentience and animals, emotions, and even uh, interviewed somebody about mushrooms, which is fascinating. So, so yeah, oh, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great resource, really. So here's a big question. You know, so you have some in, in the world that's what our will say you know how do you know emotions how do you know animals experience emotions so what's your elevator pitch for when somebody says mark i don't know you you got how do we really know what a dog's feeling or how do we really know a dog's or an animal has emotions aren't they just uh sort of just responding to the stimuli in their environment mm-hmm. well there's a couple of questions here at least there's one you know number one do they have emotions do they have feelings you know are they sentient and of course they are There's a dwindling number of people who wonder about whether dogs actually like playing. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I'm glad I'm not their dog. (laughs) So that's (laughs) that's, that's the answer for me. But, you know, as an ethologist, so getting into the science, sometimes we have phenotypes, like what we look like, what a dog looks like, the color of their fur, the type of fur, the tail, the ears. So phenotypes is basically the visible characteristics of an individual. But Conrad Lorenz, who won the Nobel Prize some decades ago, used to think of behavior as a phenotype. So he would talk about behavioral phenotypes. And, you know, the basis of that and the basis of ethology is careful observation. So just look at a dog, you know, we're focusing on dogs, it could be other animals. You know, look at how they adapt to different circumstances, their flexible behavior, for example. They know they can do X, Y, and Z with another one particular dog and A, B, and C with another dog and some puzzle that they're putting together of what they can do with different dogs, okay? It's also the case that there's just not very many phenotypes that just spontaneously appear in humans, for example. And so to me, the question isn't if emotions have evolved, but why have they evolved? What are they good for? Why are they adaptive? And I'm, you know, mixing emotions and feelings. I mean, you know, emotions are really the responses we have in our bodies. The feelings are the subjective expressions of these things that are happening in our body. But I mean, when I start talking to people about that, I could see their eyes rolling and, and, and I can, I feel very strongly that I could talk about feelings and emotions synonymously. But there are a difference. Mm-hmm. But just look at it, an individual and see how they respond. Like if you're looking at a dog, 
you know, what situations are their tails high and wagging or low and tucked under their butt? Or where are their ears? Are their eyes open? Are they smiling? Are they snarling? Do you see little lip curls? Mm -hmm. Well, these behaviors that you can see are sort of the outward indicators of what they're feeling. I mean, to me, it's just not rocket science. But what I really like, and I know this from my own writing, that over the years, there's just fewer and fewer skeptics. There just are. From a biological point of view, it's impossible to imagine that the wide variety of responses that an individual shows could all be hardwired. If A do B, if C do D, you know, and all that kind of stuff. The differences, the variation in the social situations in which, say, an individual dog finds themselves, you know, unless they're just stuck inside all day under a couch, it's almost infinite. So they're adapting to the presence of different dogs with different personalities. And that's based on what they feel. I mean, I can't think of any other way to say that. Yeah, and I yeah. think training techniques that are based on behaviorism, like stimulus response things, just don't work. I mean, I mean, they can work in terms of getting a dog to do what you want them to do, but then you've got a dog who has a very limited behavioral repertoire and who's living in constant, interminable fear, stress, and anxiety. So, you know, I stress that to people that, you know, yeah, you could do certain things with dogs, but because they are emotional beings, you can get them to do what you want them to do by beating them or shocking them or doing whatever you do to them. But then you have, like with a kid, yeah, they'll do what you want them to do, but the quality of their life is just horrific. <laughs> well stated. Yeah. And so there's different lenses of looking at emotions in animals, and, and you're talking about from a biological perspective and an ethological perspective. Do you talk about effective neuroscience or PANCEP, for instance, or mm -hmm. include that type of view in your work as well? You know, only to a limited extent, because years ago I was in a PhD MD program in the neurosciences and I dropped out of it. So I know a good deal of Jacques Panksepp's work. He was a good friend of mine, and we had disagreements about certain things, but he did really solid research. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if people ask me about the neuroscience of what we're talking about, I can explain to them the little that I know. But, you know, once again, in terms of the basis of emotions or feelings, you know, we've got a lot of research on oxytocin, for example, you know, the so-called love hormone I mean, I think a lot of what people say about it is true, but a lot's overblown. Mm -hmm. You can't take a highly aggressive dog or cat or other mammals, say, and shoot them up with oxytocin and think that it's going to be the panacea, <laughs> yeah. you know. But I think what's really interesting for me is when I go to dog parks, and I've been dog parks all over the place where there are dog parks, you know, when you start talking about the neurobiology or the neuroscience, we have some really neat work being done on neuroimaging using fMRIs, magnetic resonance imaging on dogs. And what I like about it is the dogs have to be trained to go into, say, the machine. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to, then they're not used because, number one, you can't have any noise or motion. Gregory Burns, among others, he's at Emory, who, have, who has done some of this work, uses his own dogs, and he loves his dogs. So what I like about that research is that when 
you put a dog in a certain situation and you're creating a situation where they may feel a certain emotion, the same parts of the dog brain lights up as human brain. So one of the studies this team did was looking at jealousy. Mm. And they created a situation where a dog could see a dog getting another, some food, say. But one dog was in the fMRI machine. And parts of the amygdala lit up because that's what MRIs look at is what parts of the brain are working and light up. And the same parts of the dog brain lit up as would light up when humans express jealousy. Hmm. That's a form of affective neuroscience. Mm -hmm. What I like about those studies is that for some skeptics, they'll say, well, we don't know whether dogs feel X, Y, or Z, but if the same part of the brain is lighting up, I feel comfortable saying dogs feel that. You know, one of the holes in our data, and, and, and I think it's a huge hole, is Alexandra Horowitz, who's a really great dog researcher, discovered that humans aren't very good at reading a dog's guilty face. She never said that dogs don't feel guilty. I mean, I've written a lot on that. I've got quotes from her on that. So when people say, well, Dr. Harwood said that dogs don't feel guilty, I always say we don't know whether dogs feel guilty. I feel comfortable thinking they do. They're social mammals and a lot of other mammals, including you know non-human primates, feel guilt. But I would love to see some kind of situation where some sort of affective neuroscience could be done, perhaps using the magnetic resonance mm -hmm. imaging. So I'm using that as an example because for some of the skeptics, they want science. They don't think ethology is science. They think it's stamp collecting, <laughs> which of course is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. But for some people who questioned whether dogs felt jealousy, I, I just know this from having people write to me, the study on jealousy and looking at MRIs convinced them that dogs do feel jealous. Yeah. I mean, yes. when I talk to some of my friends and I go to dog parks and I say, well, what do you think about dogs feeling jealous or guilt? They go, you academics got to get out of the ivory tower and, <laughs> and, and into the field, if you will. But I yeah. think your question's a really good one, Mike, because it's closing the door even more on the skeptics who say, Rather than saying we don't know whether dogs feel something, they say dogs don't feel something or can't feel it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the proverbial right. putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. So I feel very Absolutely. comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt dog, dogs feel jealous and I don't doubt dogs feel guilt. But you want to be a scientist? Go do the work. Yeah, yeah. Highly agree. Yeah. We're going to take a short break to hear a word from our sponsors, and we're going to come back and talk more about emotions, especially with its relation to aggression, as well as dominance. So we'll be right back. Hey, friends, it's me again, and I hope you are enjoying this episode. You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, more enriched, and overall happier lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood, and we can change that through education, like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, 
head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockle, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You'll also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. After you finish the course, you'll also gain access to a private live group mentor session portal with me where we practice working through cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We're approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs, and it's perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level, or even for pet guardians who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the fourth annual Aggression in Dogs Conference, which is happening online and in person from Chicago, Illinois, September 29th through October 1st, 2023. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Sue Sternberg, Dr. Tim Lewis, Dr. Christine Calder, Sindor Pangal, Cyrus Streming, Sean Will, Masa Nishimuta, and many, many more. Head on over to AggressiveDog.com and click on the Conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and veterinary behavior cases to working with aggression in shelter environments and even intra-household dog-dog aggression. And I wanted to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for the conference. As a family of world-class trainers, Fenzy Dog Sports Academy provides expert and accessible instruction for competitive dog sports using the most progressive training methods and positive reinforcement techniques. Through their online platform, students are able to access professional dog training no matter your location or pup's skill level. FDSA believes the bond between the dog and human is a proud and life-changing partnership, and they'll work with you to develop a respectful and kind relationship with your furry best friend. Check out FDSA at FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. All right, we're back with Dr. Mark Beckoff. We're going to jump into emotions now and aggression and the relation to aggression. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on which emotions result in those emotional responses of aggressive behavior. Obviously, fear. We were talking about fear is one of them. Perhaps we can jump to things like rage or anger if we're, again, looking at the effective neuroscience you know, system of it or mm-hmm. just your thoughts on that in terms of what you're seeing with aggressive responses in animals. Yeah, I think it's the same as we would say in humans. It could be fear, feeling anxious, being uncertain, which of course is tied into fear. Could be a dog just having a bad dog day, just like humans have bad human days. And when I first wrote about that, some people just laughed. And I went, well, why would you laugh? I mean, dogs can have bad days. I've lived with dogs who get up in the morning and they're gnarly. They're not typically gnarly, but they have a short fuse. And if I did something or said something or went over to hug them or pet them, the dogs who like being hugged or petted, I could tell that they were uncomfortable. So they could be having just a bad day. You know, they could have had a nightmare. I guarantee you that other animals have nightmares. You know, like other animals dream and they dream very vividly. So my take on it is, number one, 
It could be a chronic condition for an individual dog, as I've seen in the field with coyotes and foxes, for example, where they're just, they're nervous all the time. Something happened to them. I mean, I suppose it could be innate. I just don't know enough about that. But they have longer or shorter fuses. Mm-hmm. And it could be just tied into context. But when people say, well, no, dogs don't really feel these things or they don't use these behavior patterns to form, say, social dominance relationships or whether there are alpha dogs, they're wrong. They're just wrong. The notion of alpha and the idea that there's no such thing was really a misreading of some studies on wolves. One of the major ones is um, there was research by a guy who's Mr. Wolf, if you will. I mean, maybe there's people now who know as much as Dave Meech. He was, you know, but I wrote a paper 13 to 15 years ago, and Dave's has been a longtime friend of mine. And I asked him about that, and he wrote back and said, no, the people in the dog world have misinterpreted what he said. He even uses the words alpha and dominant, you know, in his paper. So I think for me, it's a misreading of what dominance is. So it doesn't have to be fighting. It doesn't have to involve, you know, any kind of physical contact. I could dominate you by walking towards you and having you change the route that you're taking. That could be a form of dominance. So dominance could be simply defined as Mark does something that changes Mike's behavior and you avoid me. You could be smelling me. If I'm a dog, you could be reading my reading my approach. But you do that in humans. I mean, I have avoided walking near people who are strolling up to me in a very stiff gait or, you know, they're looking around and they, their facial expressions look really nasty. So dogs can read that and dogs have the advantage, which I'm glad we don't, of maybe smelling <laughs> assertiveness or dominance. So I think part of the misreading is that dominance has to involve fighting or really intense threatening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Yeah, I have a number of questions I, I can go okay. down. But um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and I wanted to give a little context for the listeners too, because I think some of the audience is may not have heard of the concepts you're talking about or have certain conceptions about it. So so we're saying dominance exists, right? And that's an interesting thing is that sometimes in some of the conversations in the dog training community, it's put out as, oh, there's no such thing as dominance at all. But especially from the field of ethology, it's a very known phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to give sort of a, a definition that you would put out there for like the dog training community in terms of defining it. I know you kind of explained it in that sense of uh, an example, but because what we actually usually see is, you know, priority access to a resource. So that's the Hmm. one term of it. Well, that would be the, yeah. and, And really I'm not nitpicking, but that would be the effect of there being some kind of dominance relationships between two or more individuals that grants them priority of access. However, I mean, with the dogs I lived with and all the dogs who used to come down to my house in the mountains, I would have to say there were no, quote, dominance relationships among them. It was first come, first serve. They liked one another. They played. Mm -hmm. I mean, I use them as an example, as I do some of the dogs I met in India and China and East Africa, where 
they might have subtle dominance relationships that I couldn't read, but they knew one another well enough to say, oh, yeah, Mike's over there eating, so I'm not going to bother him. I'll avoid him. Maybe it's because you snarled at me before. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Like I said before, I simply think in a generic and very general way that you could define dominance as being one individual controls the behavior of another individual. So there are shades of gray, there are shades of dominance. If I walk to you and you walk away from me, I've controlled your behavior, but then I could say, oh, did you avoid me because you thought if we interacted or crossed paths that I might threaten you? And you could say, yes, I did. Or you could say, oh, no, I didn't. I saw something across the street. So that gets back to how powerful ethology is in looking at context. Mm -hmm. At least I can say to you, Mike, did you avoid me because you thought I was going to beat you up or steal your coffee? You can go, oh, no, I didn't even think about that. I was looking across the street and I saw a squirrel. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or I saw another friend. I think this is really important. And that's why the dynamics at dog parks and talking mm -hmm. to the people, the dogs, humans, is so powerful. Because they'll say, you know, I'll get there and maybe I don't know the dogs that as well as I should or could. I shouldn't say should, but, you know, there's a lot of dogs. And I'll ask people, I say, well, I see Molly and Rose. They've got this kind of dynamic where Molly seems afraid of Rose. And the people go, no, she's not afraid of Rose at all. Ten minutes ago, Rose had a stick and was running around and didn't want to share it. And Molly tried to get it and Rose growled at her. And then 30 seconds later, they're rolling on the floor playing. Mm -hmm. So to me, and I've got this book coming out called Dogs Demystified. One of the most important things people forget about, it's easy to forget about in home dogs or dogs you don't know is context. So mm -hmm. once again, I'll go back to wild canids, wild wolves, coyotes, foxes. You see this all the time. You get out there and you spend an hour watching them and you think you know all there is. And I always tell people after eight and a half years and thousands of hours watching wild coyotes, I was still learning things about them as was my postdoc and research team. So I'm not saying that we can't learn anything, but we need to be really careful about jumping to rapid conclusions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I want to unpack this a little further too. So, sure, sure. So we're using those examples, for instance. So Mark, you know, gets in my space because he wants my coffee or something like that. So he has that particular context in that particular moment. We can say Mark's dominant behavior resulted in Mike saying, okay, you can have my coffee. And so that's that context, that moment. And then I might learn from that too. I might be like, ooh, that last time Mark gave me that look <laughs> and I gave up my coffee. So the next time I'm going to avoid Mark when I've got a coffee or he's got a coffee. Yep. And so there's that learning experience too, but it's also fluid, right? So there's another day where I have my pizza and I give you a look and you are like, ooh, Mike's really, you know, he's giving me that dominant look. Of, so, so it's very resource. Right? Guarding his pizza. Yeah. So, but that that would be, I guess, a fairly accurate description of, of moments of dominance and a relationship happening there or context. That's a great example. In the absence of any threat or any physical interaction. So, mm -hmm. I've talked to people who, and I, I can understand there. They would rather reserve the word dominance, although I don't think it's factual, for situations where. I'd actually approach you and threaten you or push you or, you know, a dog would jump on another dog. 
But that's what I think is wrong because so many people who say dogs don't express dominance, it's just wrong. There's no mammal of whom I'm aware that doesn't set up some kinds of relationships. You know, you've got highly social elephants, for example. But even within the herd, you know, they learn who they can approach or not or when they can approach another animal and not piss them off. I've seen this so many times at dog parks. I mean, it's it's just going there and seeing the same dogs over and over and over again and then going with somebody who doesn't know these dogs, which I've done with students, and they'll say, oh, Rosie is dominating Molly. And what's going on? And I'll say, well, you know, like Rosie's human told me, no, that there's no dominance there. It's just they don't want to share this toy. Or Rosie tried to get the toy and Molly didn't want to have the toy. I mean, there's just, there's so many things going on. And once again, I get back to that's what's so exciting that, you know, it's no one size fits all explanation. And I'm not a dog trainer, but I love when dog trainers and some of whom I know around Boulder use all that information to come up with an effective curriculum, if you will, for helping a dog along. Excellent. Now, a little further unpacking. So okay. we, we're talking about contexts, right? And so we sometimes also see applications of relationships or also that alpha term, right? So in a, let's say we use an example of a home with four or five dogs mm-hmm. and they have different moments of, all right, today I'm going to have access to this bone. Tomorrow you're going to have access to that food bowl and, and so on and so forth. So we see these different relationships in certain contexts, but sometimes they apply sort of an overall umbrella. Oh, that dog is the most dominant one mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. the time, or that mm-hmm. dog is the alpha, which is uh, you know a problem for a lot of trainers because the argument is this very loose relationships or fluidity and gray areas. And so what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense because I think the word alpha is, it's misused, or maybe the best way to say it, it doesn't imply what other people think. Or some people think, if I'm alpha over you, it doesn't mean that I'm beating you up every time and you're avoiding me all the time. It's that somehow we have a relationship where you, I know that I can get away doing certain things to you, but it would reach a point where you might say, no way, and you could come after me. But it's also you're recognizing that relationship and saying, okay, (laughs) that's fine. I mean, if you look in flocks of birds and groups or packs or, you know, whatever you want, aggregations or herds of mammals, you'll see that. So alpha might mean that I have more freedom of movement when in a group for no reason other than I have more degrees of freedom and I can move around more than, say, you can. Mm -hmm. So the main point I think that's coming out of this, and I've thought about this for so long, is... There's no doubt that dogs form dominance relationships. I mean, if you look at studies of free-ranging and feral dogs, we know that. There's no doubt that there are higher-ranking alpha dogs, but you need to be really careful of how you use the term. That's all. Mm -hmm. So when people say there are no alpha dogs or dogs don't form packs, yeah, dogs form packs. I mean, I had a student who studied feral dogs and they do form packs and a lot of the packs resemble wolf packs or coyote packs. So I actually think sometimes, and somebody asked me this a few weeks ago, whether it just comes down to being very careful on using umbrella terms that imply different things. Mm -hmm. And I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Do I use the terms? I use them, but I always editorialize them, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, because I think one of the issues in the in the dog training industry, anyways, is that applying the principles of the misconception of the term to dog training. So, for instance, somebody yeah. says, "I need to be the alpha." in my relationship with the dog, but then they incorporate punishment techniques or abusive techniques in the name of that, right? Precisely. You could be the alpha using force-free positive training, but the term alpha doesn't seem to really apply there, if you will. Although you are, you're saying, I want you to do something, but I'm going to teach you to do it in a way that doesn't mean that I'm dominating you. But in a sense, you're controlling their behavior. That's why there's so many shades of gray. And, that, and that's why when people say they don't exist, I mean, to me, that's in the same ballpark of sorts like saying, well, dogs don't feel guilt, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. stuff. I, I think it's really important because I know people have called me who have gone down to the local shelters around, you know, Boulder where I live or other places, and they see descriptors of dogs and – They'll always ask the people, say, at the shelter or the rescue center who know the dogs, what do you mean by this term? And thank goodness the people at the shelters or the rescue centers are really well-educated. And they'll say, well, we're using that term because in these situations, this particular dog feels uneasy and can be assertive or pushy. Mm-hmm. And and we know dogs can be pushy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes. you know, they get paid yeah. to sometimes push us <laughs> to see what they can get away yes. with. But I find that to be really a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, yes. See, see, this is why I love this conversation because we're unpacking terms that are sort of four-letter words in the dog training industry, but they're four-letter words because some people have taken them and used them to justify very forceful or punishment-based techniques to dogs, right? And so that's the disclaimer. Neither Mark or I are advocating for using punishment <laughs> in the name of dominance or, or you know, uh, talking about alpha, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's really interesting for me. I was just looking something up that I had written about this, but I can't find it. It's okay. I don't think maybe it was between, say, 10 and 15 years ago that I actually came across statements that said dogs don't form dominance relationships and there's no such thing as an alpha individual. I mean, that's pretty late into my long career, if you will, Mm -hmm. but it blew my mind. And then when I started to, or tried, if you will, to have discussions with these people, they wanted nothing to do with me. They told me I didn't know what I was talking about. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I knew what I was talking about from just being a long-term carnivore ethologist. That's when I first learned. And I actually called some dog trainers, you know, I call it teachers, whatever, but dog trainers. Mm-hmm. And honestly, they too had the same response saying, whoever it is that's saying this has no concept of what's going on. It also turned out that some of the people who were saying it were people who used forceful techniques. Mm-hmm. So they could be the dominant or the alpha or the leader of the pack, which to me makes just zero sense. I'm sorry. It just it makes no sense at all. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. And it's a shame because unfortunately, when certain terms or labels are used in our industry, we avoid those conversations, those deep, meaningful conversations that need to happen to understand those terms, you know, the terminology involved. So it's a shame that that happened because there's such a learning opportunity, you know, in 15 years ago, especially when this, we were really talking about it. 
I agree and disagree to some extent. The people I've tried to talk about don't want to hear from me, and I don't want to hear from them. So, (laughs) understandable. So, no. So, so in all honesty, it's like First Amendment. You have a freedom to do what you want and say, Mm -hmm. and I have a freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. So, but it's the same kind of situation with talking about animal emotions or personalities. You know, you reach a point where you have a conversation. And an hour later or a week later, you're having the same conversation and I'm not going to change and they're not going to change. So mm-hmm. good, go do what you want to do. But the reason I'm very careful about this with dogs in particular, because you could talk about it, about wild wolves or coyotes or chimpanzees or elephants, but the people who disagree with you have zero impact on the lives of these anim- the wild animals. The people mm-hmm. who disagree with you have on the ground interactions, perhaps as trainers with dogs. And so they're bringing their ideas into the curriculum, if you will. To me, that's just bad news. I mean, I hate to say it that way because, I mean, it's no Mm -hmm. surprise that I'm a fan of positive force-free training and, you know, all the upsides to that kind of technique. But that's what I was thinking about just a couple of weeks ago. It's funny, I was finishing this Dogs Demystified and reading some sections on training and, you know, I just was reading your stuff and other people's and realizing there's still people out there who are going to read that and are going to be really upset when you just say, look, there's no reason to hit a dog, shock a dog, <laughs> yell at You know what I mean? People say, yeah. well, have you ever yelled yeah. at a dog you were living with? No. Yes, I have. But I mean, I have to say. Did I notice a change in their behavior afterwards? No, they knew I loved them, but you know, you've done it with people where you just go, stop that. But I do think in the world of dogs, these kind of overarching statements, there's nothing such as, or believing there's no such thing as dominance or aggression or assertion or happiness or joy, just it spills over into the way people interact with them. And when they're trainers, it results in pretty bad treatment of the dog. It certainly does. Sorry. It, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not, I don't mean sorry in an apologetic way. Yeah. I, I just had it. I mean, yeah. I, I just yeah. can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it stifles curiosity as well when we say, oh, this thing doesn't exist. And then our mind shuts off. Like, oh, I guess it doesn't exist because somebody's saying it doesn't exist. So let me move on to other things without being curious about these things that we sometimes don't even understand yet. So it's a shame when that happens, right? Well, it's a shame when it happens and it's a bigger shame because the downside, as you know much better than I do, is dogs get abused. And people don't interpret it as abuse, but it is abuse. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, you've got a fully sentient feeling being there who wants to trust you and wants to have a life where there's agency, mutual trust, mutual respect, and they don't. But then people say, as you know much better than I, well, what I did works. They heal. They listen to me. And I'm going, yeah, and they're probably in a chronic state of stress. Because they're afraid. They're afraid that if they don't do what you want them to do, you're just going to hit them again or shock them or do whatever, you know, whatever your aversive technique mm-hmm. consists of. And I don't want to know that. I mean, I, 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 I have to say that I don't want to know about it. <laughs> 
And what a great way to kind of wrap up what we were talking about. All It just all ties together and really understanding that dogs are sentient beings with lots of emotions. So you're talking about a lot of that in your upcoming book. Do you want to talk more about that? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> the book is called Dogs Demystified, an A to Z guide to all things canine. So it's different topics. There must be 800 of them, I think. Maybe some got dropped in the copy editing, but my brain was so filled that I wouldn't have known or maybe cared. But it's laid out alphabetically by topic. There might be a few topics that somebody would think about that aren't there explicitly, but it's all covered. So it's descriptions, lots of stories. It's all science-based, and the references will be on my homepage when the book is published, so people can just go to the homepage. Click on a reference and there it'll be, which I think is really convenient because you don't have to then either copy and paste a URL or type it out, which we used to have to do. And of course, they could be 45 characters and you miss one. But the book is really based on wanting people to respect dogs for who they are, contrasting homed, free ranging and feral dogs, Mm -hmm. becoming fluent in dog or dog literate. I'm really excited about it. It it really ate me up, if you will. I mean, I've really been working for years on it. And about a a year and a half ago, somebody said to me, you should write a book like this. And I've been trying to avoid it, having edited three encyclopedias (laughs) where where I had people contribute, you know. I think it'll be a very useful guide in a very conversational way. It's really written in a conversational way, but based on science and common sense and ethology and solid biology. So people can go, oh, I want to know what the word aggression means or abnormal or caching or lip curl or eye blink. Because I'm an ethologist, the book is almost an ethogram of 300 pages. (laughs) But what I love about it too, I've got numerous stories that have come to me over the years from not scientists necessarily, but people who say, what's going on here? Or tool use is an example where people used to say, well, no, years ago, humans were called homo faber, which mean man, the tool user. But then of course, Jane Goodall discovered tool use and now we see it. And it was just coincidental. I was writing the section on tool use. I had a few stories And within that week, so it was almost cosmic that people wrote me, I got four or five stories of different dogs using different objects as tools. So there we go. And, you know, years ago, I said it would blow my mind if dogs didn't use tools. I mean, we just haven't seen it. Do dogs recognize themselves? Hmm. How do they use P-mail, we call it in our book, Unleashing Your Dog? So- I'm excited about it, and I'm hoping people will read it and send me stories. And somebody said, oh, will there be a second edition? And I went, (laughs) ah, (laughs) no, but (laughs) unlikely. But what I like about it is on my homepage, I can put these out and people can have access and then write to me with more stories. I'm I'm excited because it's kind of like an open forum, and we need that. We, We really do. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm excited for that. I'm very much looking forward to it as well. It should be out at the time of the release of this podcast episode. So if you're listening in now, you should be able to get the book and uh, expecting somewhere in June, I think Mark said. So yeah, I'd say by by mid June. Perfect. And it's going to be a rel. I mean, I'm really thrilled that it's going to be a relatively inexpensive paperback, which I really like because. Yes. Yeah. You know, academic books with 150 pages of references, which this could be, could cost $45. Mm-hmm. It's a field guide. I mean, that's another word that, you know, you could apply to it. Yes. What I love about it, too, is I sent out – at one point, I regretted it just because I was getting comments back left and right. But I sent out a lot of the entries both to science colleagues and to people who sent me stories. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a section in there – of what would you like to ask your dog? So I've got a lovely story from Paul McCartney of the Beatles about a dog he rescued. The singer Joan Baez did the original drawings. Who's, and Emmy Lou Harris, who's a very well-known singer, she runs a rescue center for senior dogs. People don't know that these, quote, famous people are really into animals. Mm-hmm. But I also have my neighbors and my cycling buddies saying, this is what I would like to know from my dog. So once again, I think the open format ultimately will really result in a lot of information. And I can send it to you, Mike, and you can write a book on it. (laughs) (laughs) I will 100% take you up on that offer. (laughs) (laughs) Or we could do it together. But yeah, so anyway. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. This was wonderful. So I hope to see you again in the future. Likewise. Thank you for letting me freewheel because we know a lot about dogs now, but I always say the more I know, the more I say I don't know. But once again, I come back to it because it's why I wrote Dogs Demystified. It's the practical on the ground application of what we know about dogs to getting them to adapt to a human world. You know, even free-ranging and feral dogs, maybe to a lesser extent, have to adapt to a human world. But we are a human-dominated world. And we're asking dogs, maybe especially home dogs, we're asking them to do things that are not dog. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very simple. What a way to wrap up your shows. Thanks again, Mark. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. What a way to wrap up this season. I'm just so fortunate to have this opportunity to chat with so, so many incredibly talented, knowledgeable, and passionate people in our community, and Mark certainly did not disappoint. I'm looking forward to diving into his latest book and hearing more from him in the future. And I want to especially thank you for listening in and supporting the show. I couldn't do this without the wonderful support of so many listeners from around the world. So thank you, and thank you for all you're doing to help the dogs in your life. I look forward to launching season five with more incredible guests, and I hope to see or hear from you at one of the next aggressivedog.com events. And as always, stay well, my friends. He's resource guarding his pizza.
Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs Conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.